I'm Mary Ann Kobasek McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Eric Cole, an advisor at security firm Theon Technology and a former CIA white hat hacker, and also David Chris, former Assistant Attorney General for the National Security at the U.S. Department of Justice. David is also an advisor with Theon. So, Eric and David, we've been seeing a continuous flow of cybersecurity threat alerts from the U.S. government for the healthcare sector, including recent advisories about ransomware and extortion groups such as Karakurt, Evil Corp, and others. What's most significant about these threats as they pertain to the healthcare sector and why? Eric, would you like to start? Yes, to me, what makes these most significant is the shift in how these attacks are operating, which is cybersecurity is now a business. These are no longer little groups of hackers, teenagers, or other folks just trying to be disruptive. This is commercialization of cybercrime. These are organized companies that have employees that train their employees, except their whole business model is to target, steal, and exploit information from healthcare providers. So the reason what makes that so significant is this is going to be a continuous threat. If you're a healthcare provider, basically you have to recognize you're going to be targeted. There are commercial organizations that are coming after you. And this is just a continuous thing that you're going to have to deal with 24-7 moving forward. And David, from your perspective, how are these attacks here with some of these newer groups sort of evolving? I think Eric's point is extremely well taken. I mean, Healthcare data are obviously very sensitive. It's, you know, one of the areas that federal data protection laws, HIPAA, you know, protects uh, for good reason. It's extremely sensitive and it's extremely necessary. People need access to that data for their healthcare. So if the data are unavailable, there can be real kinetic effects. This is extremely sensitive data with extreme urgency around its use, you know, sometimes with life or death consequences. And the market for ransomware, as Eric was saying, is just a very dynamic one in which very, very smart people with bad intent are constantly innovating and trying to develop new strategies. We see you know, nation state or quasi nation state actors working with pure for-profit criminal enterprises. The United States indicted some uh, Iranian hackers and, and ransomware uh, actors. It's a very dynamic threat environment in which lots and lots of new and evolving threats are emerging. And so, as Eric said, I mean, companies, particularly those that have this kind of sensitive data, are going to have to really ramp up their defense and put some serious focus on it to keep the data safe. So with that said, how are these threat actors getting into these systems and evading detection before it's too late for many of these healthcare entities that then wind up having ransomware either triggered or mass data exfiltration happening without them realizing until it's too late? How are these hackers getting away with this? Eric? It's a couple of reasons. One is the main entry point is the individual. That is always going to be the weakest link. And it's really good phishing attacks. Like I, I go back and I look at some of the early phishing attacks, like I love you and Melissa. And yeah, people fell for them, but they were pretty obvious. But right? unless you work for a really strange organization, 
it's not normal for you to tell your coworkers that you love them, right? So it's, that, that was a fairly obvious attack that people fell for. But today, these emails are looking legitimate. They're aligned with the type of work that people do. They're looking and disguising as delivery services, e-commerce services, and all they're doing is getting somebody to click a link, open an attachment, and then get into the organization. And then the second problem is because most organizations do not have zero trust and their internal networks are wide open, once somebody gets access to a computer of an individual, they can spread rapidly across the environment, get access to the critical data, and then hold it ransom or extort it. Maybe I'll footstop that, but I mean, humans are weak. The quality of the phishing emails now is so high that a normal human cannot really detect just by looking at it. It won't have obvious grammatical errors. It won't come from some really weird email address or something. And they move very fast once the uh, bad guys break in and they can come in through, you know, an air conditioning or HVAC vendor or through a point of sale cash register type, uh, you know, point of entry. And then they move laterally, just as Eric said, once they're in, unless your network is properly defended in a zero trust architecture, they can go all over the place. And it's very, very tough to root them out once they've got a, a foothold. So from a legal perspective, organizations are always urged by the FBI and other law enforcement not to pay ransoms to cyber criminals. And depending on whether a threat actor is a state-sponsored group by a country listed on the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Controls sanction list, a ransom payment could be illegal. So what's your advice to healthcare sector entities, such as hospitals, that often find themselves between a rock and a hard place, critical IT systems being locked down? And how would an entity even know who they're dealing with up front to know whether or not there's a possibility of this being illegal from a federal perspective to pay? I mean, I guess as the lawyer, maybe I'll take the first crack at this and Eric can come in. I mean, you know, the the best thing you can do to avoid getting caught between a rock and a hard place that you just described is to take appropriate defensive measures up front so you're not vulnerable to this kind of thing, or at least less vulnerable. And that means, you know, backing up your data. It means defending your network at all levels. It may mean, you know, getting high quality cybersecurity and threat intelligence. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do to protect yourself. You know, as I said, even just having a, a backup that you can readily restore and, and working through and practicing, you know, data restoration in case you are hit. Because the best way you can avoid this super hard decision that you might be put in is to just not be there in the first place. Eric, anything you'd like to add? Completely agree that the best way to avoid it is prevention. But the reality of the situation is, if you didn't prevent it and you are hit with ransomware, that from a pure business perspective, it sometimes is your only option. If, if you're hit with ransomware and you there's a million dollar ransom from, and I hate to even say this, but it goes back to the commercialization of cybercrime, a reliable uh, criminal activity, right, that, that are known to pay, they're known to have high quality on the customer service front which that alone is, I know, a bizarre conversation. But, but if that is known and you look at the data, here's what a company's faced with. They either are down, a hospital is down for three weeks and they lose $30 million or 
they pay a million dollars and they're up and running in three hours. So the unfortunate reality is these cybercrime groups know that they price out the ransom payment in a way that it's almost no brainer and cost effective, that it's the only option left to companies. So I don't like it. It's not something that I wish companies would do, but unfortunately in the day and age that we live, if you're a hospital and you need to survive and you need to support patients and you're not able to do what David said, the unfortunate reality that the government doesn't understand that I think puts businesses in an unfair spot is the ransom payment is the quick and easiest way to get back up and running. So as David said, you know, of course, the goal is for healthcare entities to defend themselves from becoming victims in the first place. But when you start digging into what healthcare sector entities can be doing better to combat these threats, especially when it comes to steps that maybe they're falling short on right now, what do you see, Eric? What's your suggestion? The two big suggestions, one is organizations need to recognize that what people think they need and what they really need are not the same. Block attachments and block embedded links. I I get a ton of criticism if we were on stage, CIOs would start throwing tomatoes at me. But the reality is when you look at the actual data, it's really only a small part of the business. If you're looking at external email from external folks, if you go in and block attachments and block embedded links, the impact to the business is actually quite small than most people realize, and the benefit is huge. So sometimes we have to start doing paradigm shifts in how we approach the problem. The other thing to remember is right now today, most of the attacks are Windows-based. It's not because Windows is more vulnerable, it's because the install base and most healthcare providers use Windows. So this is a short-term solution because as healthcare providers do it, more will change. But giving doctors, giving medical professionals, non-Windows devices, Android, tablets, and iPads, that greatly reduces the probability that if it is malware, it could negatively impact the system. And then the second area is, of course, segmentation, zero trust internally. So if a device does get compromised, it can't spread across the environment. And David? I guess what I could sort of say at a a higher level of generality is on the good news side, it doesn't take much to get you and your organization into better shape than a lot of other organizations. And the the bad guys out there may head towards the low-hanging fruit. And so if you can just do a few things, you may as a practical matter, uh, protect yourself in a non-trivial way. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. And the other is just as a process point that boards of directors or other governing authorities within companies or any kind of organization, if they're not already all over this, they ought to be because their fiduciary duties, uh, their insurance profiles, their vulnerabilities to the ransomware itself and for you know follow-on civil actions. There's an increasing suite of incentives in the marketplace and the legal frameworks here that I think are driving and ought to be driving anyway, some real attention to be paid to this empowering of chief information officers, chief data security officers, the use of audits, the use of uh, you know, high-end cybersecurity tools. There are things that can be done, but they're not easy, as, as Eric was saying, and they require typically some pretty high-level engagement at the governing authority within the organization that pushes those things through. 
And if you do those things, you, you may find yourself better off than say 60 to 80% of the, of the other players in the market. And that may be enough to, to give you substantial, but not perfect protection. And finally, briefly, anything you're kind of keeping your eye on in terms of what's next in terms of this evolution of attacks that we're seeing, especially on the healthcare sector? David, would you like to go first? Sure. I mean, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, really interested in the dynamics of the marketplace for ransomware as a service and the various combinations of offerings that are available there. People can start to buy these things. There are criminal elements that seem to be operating just for profit that seem to be mixing and matching with quasi nation state actors out there. So I look at the sort of threat environment through the lens, frankly, of of government actors who are trying to defend against it. And I think that that's a very dynamic place. Eric, what would you like to add? Just the two things. One off of what David said is, yeah, the one thing we're looking at very closely is right now, the way these attackers are getting in are pretty simple and low sophistication because many companies aren't fixing the basic areas that we've talked about. They're still unpatched servers. They're still allowing attachments. They're not doing validation checks on emails. So what we're looking at is when the basic easy things that they're using today get fixed, what's the next level of attack? What's the more sophisticated way they're gonna exploit organizations so we can help minimize or prevent? And once again, the answers sort of keep coming back to zero trust, zero trust as the solution vector. The second thing we're monitoring very closely is the switch from ransom to extortion. Because the idea of ransom is your data is not backed up. So we make your data unaccessible And because you didn't have proper backups, then you're going to pay us and we're going to give you your data back. But as organizations focus more on the backing up and redundancy, and now when ransom comes in and says, if you don't pay the ransom, you can't get your data back. And they say, no worries, we have a backup and they restore. These are are commercial companies. They want to make money. So what are they going to do? They're going to say, great, if you don't give us extortion payment, we're going to publish your private patient data to the internet. So to me, organizations aren't out of the woods if they fix the ransomware problem with backups because the attacker is going to pivot and shift from a ransom payment to an extortion payment. Well, thank you so much, Eric and David. I've been speaking to Eric Cole and David Chris. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.